Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Adam. I almost forgot your name <laughs> for like a second there. Yeah, it's all your podcasts. You just get lost. <laughs> no. Which, which co-hosted this? <laughs> it's not that. I just like, I've just had a day. I've had a day where my mind has been a, a wandering. You had grog in your throat and in your mind. If I sound groggy, either physically through my voice or or because of the words coming out of my mouth i apologize especially if vanessa sounds groggy during the interview then it has nothing to do with it because it was pre-recorded welcome to uncertain things welcome to uncertain things <laughs> uh today we have uh dr don carpenter our friend from georgetown university host of the what does it profit podcast she's a cool one we we met her as a fellow partner in audio and and we just got into her podcast she brings a, a really special perspective into the this world of business and finance, which she actually comes from, but she also brings to bear a more stringent moral demand on this world. Her premise is that late-stage capitalism can no longer just justify itself by the utility of free markets, but actually has to be undergirded by some ethical expectations. So she judges current events through this prism, but also brings in guests who, who share her intuition from the business world people who are actually trying to implement this ethical change from within capitalism, using the tools of business to, to insert higher values like justice into a system that is not necessarily meant to absorb it or reflect it. And some might argue not even not necessarily, it's perhaps actively <laughs> ignoring them. Um, but yeah, I think the the, the, I think uh, you you summed it up well, but in a nutshell, I think she believes that you know business can be leveraged for good, and the folks that she interviews in the podcast believe it too. And then the question is only whether or not they're actually right, or is this all just wishful thinking? Which is a question that we put to Don, and only just started scratching the surface. We did get into her backstory, which is actually quite interesting, and you wouldn't necessarily pick up from the podcast itself. That said. You, you know, you should still check, go check out season two of the podcast. It, it came out a few weeks ago. I think they're mid-season right now. And there's, uh, they can not only explore their new episodes, but you can also go to their back catalog and check out the, the season one episodes too. There's a small digression that we also take, which is exploring her academic work, which is influenced by her religious um, revelation, I suppose, that she's undergone. She, she has born again Catholic. I don't know if that's an accurate <laughs> description, but she has, has found God, which seems to be a recurring theme with our uh, guests, despite our own uh, heretical propensities, or maybe because of them. It's, uh, we're like exotic tourists in the world of divinity. That said, I mean, it's not like Don's sanctimonious about it. I would I would definitely say that, you know, that it, that was is a really interesting part of who she is and her identity, but when it comes to the podcast, I think and the and the more her more public facing work, I think the way that you um the way they, uh, like the lens that she brings to it is much more moral rather than kind of in your face um, Catholic, for example. So I think it, it's interest. It's definitely interesting to understand the undercurrents of where she's coming from in her work. Doesn't mean that um, the work itself doesn't smack of religiosity or anything like that. Last thing I want to ask you, Vanessa, as a, as a side note, this is something that I've been thinking about. I think it's partly inspired by our conversation with Martin Gurry. This is still ringing in the back of my mind. Is 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 our world becoming more more virtual? Like in a profound sense, not not just are we spending more time on the internet? Which obviously, we do. But are we actually losing touch with everything real? This is also redolent of what we talked about with Katie Herzog on how our conversations, our social conversations, our politics are all becoming just fake. They less and less correspond with any real world consequences 
and are almost entirely the reflections of people's group affiliations or team membership or or just an idea that they think uh, represents them. It's only about the part they think they play in this theater production of politics. And as a result, our, our discourse is just this recursive, self-referential gyre of bullshittery instead of, you know, coming together and trying to solve real-world problems. To some extent, it also feels like we're getting there in our economy. For example, the whole GameStop bubble moment, that, that was basically culture war in the, in the finance market. You know, a, a lot of the reactions were, well, the finance world is already untethered um, from reality. But it's not entirely true. Like, there, despite the crazy degree of speculation that uh, precipitated the 2008 crash, ultimately, it, it, it happened because the housing market burst. There was a bubble that burst, which is another way to say that something changed in the way that people were acting in the real world that was then translated into the, the stock market. But now something has changed. Now that there is this um, Martin Gurry revolt of the public type of um, democratization of the financial world with everybody on their own apps able to buy stocks and, and, and kind of like uh, heap their judgment on businesses that they like based not on their their prospects for for financial success and for getting a good return on their investment, but just because they symbolize something for them. And, and and people, you know, voicing their moral predilections through stock buying. Is that is that is that something that you you see happening or or is that just me trying to to find a grand theory of everything? Like this kind of virtualization, culturalization of of everything, including the economy. I mean, <laughs> it's a big question and I feel like it's hard to answer the economic part of it as well as this kind of more everyday life living on the virtual realm. Because if we just talk about the economic part of it, I think there's absolutely a trend towards investing in what speaks to you morally. And I think that's uh, an upside, I guess, because a, a lot of the examples that you brought up were like the negative the negative sides of the virtualization of everything, including the economy, aka like the GameStop example. Uh, whereas I'm literally actively having talked to Don, having talked to um, or having uh, read the book of one of our future guests that I won't spoil at the moment. I'm actively figuring out ways to try and convert my like pension fund into to invest in companies that I think are better on like ESG metrics, for example. So in that way, that's kind of that's a good side effect, but kind of has nothing to do with the way I would have answered the first half of your question, which is, are we... Are we all feeling more virtualized in our everyday world in a way that's negatively impacting our our social and reaction, our social interactions and the way we communicate with each other? I think yes. I think and it's been hype and put in hyperdrive because of the pandemic in a way that definitely doesn't feel good. I don't think to a lot of people. What I'm holding on hope to though is that because we've been forced into this mass experiment of of extra uh, virtualization that we didn't that we were kind of headed to before but weren't like fully committed to i'm hoping there's going to be a hard hard swing of the pendulum here and that people begin to embrace irl messy real life 
uh, interaction. But I mean, let's see. I I I don't know how much these pendulums will actually swing um, because I think that to a certain extent we're never going back to to completely non virtual. That's just that's just gone. We're definitely not going back to the pre. Uh, revolt of the public mentality right those were trends that were happening before the pandemic but maybe maybe you're right maybe maybe the 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 vacillation of 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 having spent uh, a whole year more than a year in 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 complete isolation will 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 then like swing back and and get people Mm -hmm. to go uh i really want to meet my neighbor now there has been more like activity at the local level even during the pandemic because our worlds have gotten more you're either on the on the global world, <laughs> on the internet, or you're you're in your block a lot more than you ever were before. The only question is that will the renewed interaction, if if indeed we see that, will that then translate back into our behavior online mm, and, right. and in, in a way that will make us Doubtful. like you know I'm, I'm not that excited about seeing like Twitter lynch mobs. That's not it's not as thrilling to me as it used to be. I mean, I almost feel like it'll be less because we're interacting with each other in person. And it'll be more because we just grow tired of the 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 tenor and the dynamics of the virtual interactions. Like, I can't imagine how how long can people keep this up? <laughs> I just don't. I don't. I can't. I hope. I hope that people don't like keep feeding this beast as it slouches towards Bethlehem. Indeed, to be born. Well, I guess we will leave it at that. But this is definitely a question that's been ringing in my mind for 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 basically since we started uh, uncertain things, and we will keep on asking people smarter than us the, that very question. And and on that note, please uh, subscribe if you haven't already to uncertain.substack.com or to uncertain things on Apple, Spotify, wherever. Um, Podcast Addict, uh, Stitcher. Po- Pocket Cast. And we are to, uh, Uncertain Pod on the Twitters, Instagrams, and, and the rest of these beasts. Mm. Oh, and because this is an episode about capitalism, I can announce that we also opened a store. So if you want an Uncertain Things mug... Go ahead and grab it. There's not much there yet, but there will be soon. Um, that's it. Here we go to Dr. Don Carpenter. Hi, Don. Uh, hey, guys. How are you? Great. As we will obviously introduce you in the intro to the podcast, you are the host and I was going to say, are you also the producer? Well, I guess I've been learning a lot about this media stuff because I didn't grow up in this world. But um, and so I'm learning that the person who has like the final say is the executive producer. So um, I guess that's what I do. In print, you'd be uh-huh. the editor in chief. There you go. So, there you go. So you're the um, editor in chief uh, and host <laughs> of the What Does It Profit podcast. Yes, the lady that pays the bills. Exactly. So tell us a little bit about this podcast. So we wanted to find a way to differentiate um, the way we wanted to talk about business. Um, we didn't want to be a marketing show mm. or a um, uh, an infomercial, you know, trying to hawk something. We really wanted to look at serious stuff, but from a different angle. And so you've got business shows, um, particularly the more heady stuff um, that comes out of public media that really talks about the economic value of business. But what we do is talk about the moral and social value value of business. Um, and we call it, what does it profit? And um, for those who have a theological lens, um, maybe 
familiar with this phrase, but it's this idea, and we ask all of our guests, you know, in the work that you do in the world, um, and that varies if you look at our guest list, um, what does it profit? What does it benefit? And what does it benefit you personally, but really more the common good? And so, that's what we're all about. And I saw in my in my research that that title, What Does It Profit? When I first saw it, I was a little bit confused actually I was like what is what does that even refer what does it refer to exactly and then as I was researching I realized it comes from a a verse from the bible actually um what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul pretty heady right it's great it was a great verse I think it captures part of the reason that we we liked your podcast and thought that it'll be interesting talking to you because our conversations so far we we are almost confusingly eclectic sometimes because in trying to find some sound footing, we we've been looking at at anywhere from religious scholars to political commentators, and we thought felt like we've been missing the one aspect that really does shape a lot of our world, which is the the economy and business. And you and your perspective through it kind of combined this, this whole gamut. Yeah, we're like a, a thinking person's business podcast, um, deep thinking person. What's your history in bringing uh, this podcast about? <laughs> yeah, how does, how does one go about finding their way to, to, uh, to doing something like this? Well, I started out life as an investment banker. I spent almost... 25 years doing financial deals. And um, my clients almost exclusively during that time were social purpose organizations whose mission was either educational or cultural or uh, civic um, in some way, but they needed to access the capital markets primarily for real estate projects. So we were financing museums, um, schools, universities, hospitals, um, headquarters for very large trade and cultural organizations. Was um, this by chance or by, by pursuit that you got these kinds of clients? Oh, well, it was by design. Um, after, well, I started out um, thinking, um, I guess as a teenager, I was thinking about what was, what was I going to study in college, which was a big deal for me because I was the first in my family to go to college. This will date me, but I watched the film All the President's Men. And I don't know if you remember that, but, you know, there's Woodward and Bernstein exposing um, the Watergate scandal, which seems oh so you know, innocent <laughs> these days. But I saw that and I'm like, you know what? Those guys are doing something really important. Um, I want to be just like that. So I came to Washington um, to learn to be a political journalist. And, um, you know, it's, I don't know if any of your listeners are, you know, first generation college students, but it's a struggle. And so for me, it became a matter of practicality. Um, I was uh, studying political science thinking, you know, rather, you know, it was this question, do I study political science or do I study journalism? I thought, well, I can always learn how to write, but I should know what I'm writing about. So I was studying political science and I'm like, you know what, how am I going to earn a living doing this? And I worked all through college. Um, and one of the jobs that I had was as a corporate paralegal in this enormous law firm in Washington, D.C. So I made an awful lot of money doing that because I worked crazy hours, but I met some of what we now consider icons in finance. And I, like, I looked around the room one day and I'm like, who do I want to be when I grow up? But I'm looking around and I'm like, you know what? I've got this very expensive college education to pay for. 
you know, who do I want to be in this room? And I looked around and I was like, you know what? I think I want to be the banker. And it was really a, a moment of, um, it was the fork in the road. Um, and so I've always had this interest and desire um, to tell stories. And I learned that um, that's a lot of the important work that bankers do, which is tell the stories of those who need capital to the people who have capital to invest. And so that's kind of how in my mind I made that oh, wait, transition. Wait, 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 wait. So this is, this, is, <laughs> this is very counterintuitive to somebody like me hearing the word banker as a, uh-huh. the banker as a storyteller, something that needs a little more unpacking, I think. As investors, you have a lot of opportunities for investment. So you look at the numbers and you say, okay, well, this, this asset is going to give me this return. So is this asset. So how do I make a difference? How do I uh, make a choice between this asset and this asset? Well, it's about assessing the risks. Mm. And the risks are understood through the process, uh, you could say, of storytelling. You explain, you know, what is the reason uh, for the existence of this entity? Uh, what is it that they're trying to achieve? Um, what are the forces out in the world that are going to help make that happen? And what are the forces that are going to be um, the headwinds against that happening? And it becomes a story. That was always, for me, the most fun part of my job. I, I guess we don't we don't normally interview uh, um, um, people from the finance world on this podcast. So it's it's just it's just such a unique. Is that is that the common understanding of of the job you do? Yes, it's like the great Oz behind. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, you know, as, as somebody who, who's really terrible at investment, it always strikes me as basically just picking the story that makes sense to you. And I but deep down, I always attribute that to my own ineptness in understanding really how to read <laughs> the, the fluctuations of things. Like when I when I see people say something like, oh, if we go to war, it's going to impact the these stock because it's going to cause these to rise and these to fall. I feel like that sounds like such a human centric way to look at it. Whereas obviously the market itself is such a complete like a transcendent dental force that we don't fully understand it's in my mind always the shamans of the of wall street have access to much more sophisticated tools than stories they have numbers they have math on their side and that is how they really evaluate um, things that we don't understand things that are you know obviously everything comes down to evaluating human behavior of course but i always assume that the evaluations occur on a level that is not really um narratable yeah but you know you have to put those numbers aside at some level. I mean, think about all the companies that are out there. Uh, Just even, let's take the tech space where, you know, they're not making money. They're losing money. But we love these companies anyway. Um, We nurture these companies. We want these companies to be successful because they have great stories. I mean, you think about the Ubers of the world. So, I think that you're right. I mean, there is this um, mystification of, you know, the quantitative side of what goes on. And, you know, especially now with automated trading. Um, you know, a lot of this gets done by computers and more and more with AI. Um, you know, it's the human side of it. Um, we don't so much talk about, but I believe that um, markets should serve humanity. I sat on a panel um, with a group um, 
of folks from throughout the world this past year um, that was convened by the Vatican. It was called the Economy of Francesco. And it's this idea of how do we look at finance as service to humanity? Um, and there, there are a lot of big questions involved with that process. At that point of you, when you decided you wanted to be the banker and you fell in love with that capacity of, of telling the story, Where is the, the, the goal? Because already you combine two different aspects of it. Part of it is you need to tell a story in order to, tell, to get somebody to understand why they want to invest in one option other than the other. But you also said that we want the markets to be human, which implies some, certain human values that go beyond where you want to invest in order to get your you know, best bang for the buck. Oh, yeah. No, good observation for me. It was, you know, here I had come out of, I had just uh, earned a uh, graduate degree in political science. I was all about, you know, had this orientation of the public good. So I became a banker um, that focused on these types of, you know, civic and charitable organizations. And these were the really early days. This was like the early 1990s. There weren't bankers who so much focused on these specialty nonprofit organizations. And so I thought, well, I'm going to create this niche. And so I did. I was in my early 20s. Um, I went through school really fast. I was on this terror not to be, you know, in this impoverished state of, you know, trying to get through college on my own. And I was just very determined. And so, I, I guess I had a lot of chutzpah. You know, my boss really couldn't argue with me because here I was, this young banker bringing in deals. That's not typically the way it works. You usually carry someone's briefcase mm -hmm. for a few years. For me, I just didn't want to waste any time. Yeah, it's... it's it It's, I think it's very important to put it in, in the context of the time period because it like you're saying like in the 90s that wasn't a done thing not just that your personal story about going out and see, seeking deals but seeking out this niche that you wanted to carve out for yourself and I think that now we are at a moment where um, where that is becoming kind of the more com maybe not common yet but it's it's starting on that path to being the more common path forward for people and I'm really fascinated to get into the, this idea of the ways that we're telling the stories are changing now right the thing the ways that we're evaluating risk is completely changing um, and I definitely want to dive into that but before I do I, I do want to make sure I understand from your perspective you know where you were coming from did you just have a Uh, did, did you have the religious background? Did you have a, an interest in theology that was kind of driving this moral kind of path that you wanted to forge in the business world? Or was that something that came later? Oh, that came later. Um, and it came in a very dramatic way. I mean, I was like, do whatever it takes to get the job done. I ghost wrote a autobiography of an adult film actress. I mean, I was doing, I, I was not sitting in the pews. Um, <laughs> that came later. Yeah, well, for me, my lens was always a little bit colored because I didn't come to this field of or this profession, you know, from a background um, that um, I guess I came from a questioning background only because, you know, I, my parents are bar owners and, you know, had never gone to college. Um, in the early days, my dad made tires at you know, Goodyear Tire Factory. Um, I didn't come from a family of, you know, lawyers and bankers and doctors and so forth. So I always had this kind of working class perspective. Um, and so maybe I was just looking at things in a way that maybe other people didn't want to see or didn't have, 
you know, the inclination to see or who knows, who knows. It's funny because I can imagine that as somebody, I'm also from a working class background and I, so I can imagine I very much relate to this tension where on one hand you can very much recognize the, uh, the inequity and the indignity that are produced by the system, but at the same time wanting to extract as much as possible from it as long as you can. Oh yeah. Let's get real. I mean, I had a very, I mean, there were times when I was in college when I was homeless and I didn't, I never wanted my children to ever experience that. And so for me, the most important values I had was I wanted a paid off home and I wanted to fully fund my kids' education as early as possible. So I, it was like an insurance policy for me. So, you know, I financed my oldest daughter's college education on two derivatives trades. It's like, okay, um, did I earn that money? I mean, that's how we were compensated. Um, you know, it would take an awful lot of hard manual labor and a lot of beers to pour in my dad's pub <laughs> if, um, you know, if I had to earn it the old-fashioned way. Well, I also, as, as somebody who has zero understanding of the banking world, I have no idea how much uh, how much time goes into two derivative trade. If you told me that it takes 10 years to, to complete them, then... No, 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 no. It's an unregulated... Well, it's more regulated now um, after the 2008 crash, but in the days I was doing it, it's completely unregulated market. It's a, it's a very lucrative business, suffice to say. And, and in terms of when you decided that the traditional path was no longer cutting it for you. When did that happen? Oh, well, you asked me about uh, the question about uh, a faith background. Um, I had this kind of mystical experience in about 2003, and that was not it. That was not what set me off on this other trajectory. That's what said, oh my gosh, I think I see the world differently. And so, I started reading theology. Um, you know, after that experience. And so, it was probably seven or eight years later that I actually decided to make the break to do something else. And I looked at my husband, I'm like, you know what? I want to write. You know, I go back all these years ago, you know, where we started this conversation. I said, I want to write and I want to write something important. He's like, well, what are you, what do you, what do you care about? What, you know, what's important to you? And during those intervening um, years, I had um, uh, gotten a graduate degree in theology. I told you I was reading, like I had this mystical experience and I started reading. Well, I had some advice on what to read. Um, so, I was taking one-off um, theology courses and ended up with a graduate degree in theology. Um, and I thought, you know, I want to know what God has to say about the nature of work and the responsibilities of wealth. My husband looked at me, he's like, Okay. <laughs> He's like, well, where are you going to do that? I'm like, I have no idea. And so, my graduate training, I have graduate degrees in political science, finance, and theology. I'm like, well, how do I put all of those together? Um, and are those the right disciplines? So, I thought, you know, a PhD in any one of those subject areas was not going to afford me what I thought were the answers. And so, I did a lot of homework and I found a program at Georgetown University in, here in Washington that offered an interdisciplinary doctorate. And I'm like, that's it. This is where I'm going. Well, I had no idea how perfect um, of a place Georgetown was going to be to work on issues like this. Um, and so, I spent five years there and I studied in a discipline called liberal studies. And I wrote this enormous um, 
uh, dissertation. It wasn't enormous in terms of pages. It was probably 160 pages, but uh, it was enormous in big ideas. And so what I wanted to do was to, once I felt I thought I understood with what a Catholic theological perspective was, because I come from the Catholic faith tradition, not originally, that's a whole nother story, but, but I wanted to say, okay, if I have a handle on this, what does it mean? And so, that took me to a place um, called contributive justice theory, which is a emerging theory of justice or a dimension of how we understand justice that has roots in a variety of different disciplines. And um, there are all kinds of ways of understanding it. So, I said, well, maybe my contribution, no pun intended, is to come up with a definition of contributive justice um, that's rooted in this theological perspective um, and then think about what it might mean in the world. And so, that was my project. And so, during all that time, um, I was affiliated with a center at Georgetown that uh, studies issues related to labor and the working poor. And they said, look, um, we're going to give you some resources and you can do whatever you want. And so, that's what um, was the impetus for starting the podcast. And uh, we've got some very varied um, people you'd never imagine on a business show, uh, you know, come to our show. So, uh, you know, I had Raj Sisodia, who is the father of conscious capitalism. He and John Mackey from Whole Foods um, started the conscious capitalism movement. And it's this movement among CEOs who, you know, are ostensibly the leaders of the culture of their companies that said, you know, we need to have a consciousness of what we're doing. Um, You know, so I think there are, you know, companies that are, you know, coming around and, um, you know, know, I I look back in those early 90s days, you know, to find social purpose organizations, they had to be quote unquote, nonprofit. Well, you know, those days have been transcended, which I think I'm very grateful for. I didn't imagine that I'd see it in my, you know, working career, but um, they're here. And and I think it's a a trend that's not going away. There is a growing demand coming from I suppose both shareholders in certain companies and also the, um, I guess the, 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 uh, C-suite world to, to become more conscientious and the, and you have, you have forums like, like market world, you have uh, portfolios with purpose, you have a lot, all those, um, um, groups, but what, uh, do we actually see results out of this or are, are we seeing just, you know, pricked up language and, and, and slightly beatified mission statements that end up just giving cover to the same profit motive. Yes, yes, and yes. There is a great um, hope in the idea of having a social purpose to business. There are um, good and well-intentioned um, efforts um, that are done by very large corporations um, who print these glossy reports that say, you know, this is our social responsibility um, report, much in a way they might report their financial earnings, um, but they're doing it in a way to tell the story of um, the good in the world that their company's doing. You know, is that a whitewash 
Um, I would say in some cases, yes. I mean, when I hear Chevron talking about, you know, you know, environmental stewardship, I just want to cringe. <laughs> um, you listen to our pilot episode, um, you know, of our of the first season of our show, we had a shareholder activist who um, led a team of um, activist investors at the spring shareholder meeting last year of Chevron who had a, um, it was a $9 billion liability for um, uh, pollution of the Ecuadorian Amazon by their predecessor company, Texaco. Um, and they've spent billions of dollars trying to get out of it. And it's like, you know, maybe you just think people are going to forget, but you know, you've got shareholders who own equity in your company that are telling you to do the right thing. Um, and hey, that is a whole new world. Um, so I, I hold hope that it's, um, you know, it's going to be a lot of outside pressures. And ultimately, uh, I think pressures from the investors that are going to drive more of the behavior, investors and consumers, because consumers are becoming much more conscious of where they spend their money. Um, and a lot of that has to do with transparency, either transparency that the company is voluntarily offering, uh, because they think they tell a good story or transparency by third-party organizations that are doing the hard work of uncovering um, a lot of really bad behavior. Full disclosure, I'm a very uh, glowing capitalist, like to, to the <laughs> vexation of my friends. And yet I am also very open to the idea that some of the, the problems of, of inequality that plague us are are systemic in, in the true sense, in the way that we have, it, this is not just corruption of an aggregate of, of companies, but there, there is a deeper culture of behavior that is facilitating that. And that is not just not to say that abandon the free market and start planning the economy, but it does mean that changes require more than um, the few angels that decide to, to act kindly or, or, or adapt uh, a, a more moralistic language. Oh, I agree with you. And I think a lot of it has to do with the exploitation and commodification of labor. When, you know, the objective is to squeeze out um, the last ounce of economic value in, you know, in a process of, of selling a good or a service, what gets cut? You know, ultimately it's those costs of labor or the, it could be things like safety or quality of the products. I mean, you know, we have operated in this country and largely globally uh, for many, um, several generations of business people have, you know, been um, educated with this philosophy that shareholder value um, means solely economic value. And I love the story. Again, I go back to this Chevron activist case where those shareholders said, wait a second, we're standing up because we think that it is in the long-term shared economic value to do the right thing. Um, and when you have a, that change in perspective where value means more than just um, economic efficiency, you know, you start to look at making different decisions. Of course, the question is, will they still be making that same point when they're, the, the bottom line is actually starting to take a real hit? Right. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a problem. It is a it's a big problem. I mean, so you have to start looking at, you know, what are those systemic um, levers that cause this behavior? You know, a lot of it has to do with executive compensation, how um, uh, executives are compensated within the corporate structure, how corporations are governed. You know, those are pivot points that can start to begin to change behavior. 
I hope that this this movement that I see happening in business is going to make a big difference because I do think that you know companies have tremendous power that they could exert and make real diff- positive impact on this world. And in fact, if they don't, they're going to have an outsized negative impact. That said, I am skeptical that it's going to actually happen in a meaningful way. And part of my skepticism is rooted in the private sector's relationship to the public sector. And when you need to kind of regulate strictly to enforce behavior versus how much is going to come naturally from the private sector kind of understanding that, hey, long-term, we're not going to have a planet to sell with people to sell products to if we don't change our behavior. And I'm curious to get your take on what what should the relationship between private and public sector be if we're going to be able to have a capital capitalistic societies that are okay for the good for the planet? Yeah, I think that's a very um, important observation. I interviewed for season two um, a congressman, Congressman Andy Levin. He is uh, from the 9th District of Michigan, comes from this iconic um, political family um, in Michigan, and introduced a piece of legislation related to the um, desire to put in place a requirement for fiduciaries of investment funds to take into account an investment policy that has a philosophy or an approach towards responsible investing. And so he's not saying that Congress should mandate that pension plan fiduciaries invest in, we call it ESG, environmental, social, and governance attributes that they are mandated to do so. But he's uh, his legislation says that these fiduciaries should be mandated to at least consider it. And so they should have investment policies in place that stipulate exactly how they're going to approach the review and consideration of these types of investments. And if that can get passed, it would be huge. You wrote a whole dissertation about what God has to say about, you know, the responsibility of wealth and work. And I I want to know, you know, TLDR, what does God have to say about it? All right. What do I see as the answer? I think, you know, you get a different answer, whatever theologian you talk to. Um, But the way I was able to understand it was I wanted to start out by thinking about who we are as human beings. Uh, The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King um, called us co-workers with God. You know, the the story of the Garden of Eden and uh, God commissioning mankind uh, to work. So, work was given to us as a way to help um, dignify us. And that's where I think Dr. King was going with this idea of being a co-worker with God, being able to transform creation to the glory of God. So, that's where I started, was this idea of man being a co-creator with God. And so, in that social tradition of the church, um, there's this concept called the universal destination of goods. It's this idea that the earth was created for the benefit of everyone. And so, you start thinking about when does private property come into effect? To balance that out, there's this concept called the social mortgage. You're familiar with the concept of a mortgage, right? Where you have, let's say, a piece of real estate where you um, don't have um, all of the money 
need to buy it outright. So you don't have total, complete private ownership of it. You share that ownership with some lender. Well, in the social mortgage within Catholic social teaching, it's this idea that the goods of the earth have a social mortgage put on them. So we owe mankind um, for the use of those resources. You can imagine how that would roll out in practicality, um, but it underlines this concept that we owe each other something, a duty of sharing or a duty of support, or a duty of safety, all kinds of things um, are wrapped up into that. And so you have these kind of property level you know, issues. But when you think about it in terms of the human person, the bottom line of all of this is that we are called to flourish. From a theological perspective, flourishing really means um, uh, the beatific vision, being in the presence and seeing God, uh, being one with God. And so, if that's our ultimate goal as human beings, how do we get there by interacting with you know, the forces in the world? There are two competing drivers. One is this idea of solidarity, charity, or love. And then that's balanced with this idea of subsidiarity, which is the idea that um, we should live in societies or in communities or in families or in relationships where the decision-making is done at the lowest level, competent enough to make that decision. So, um, it really is a, a way to understand human agency so as not to um, rob others of agency. I, I'm stuck still at the earliest stage. I, I am a theology skeptic. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very much into the literature of religion, but when it comes to trying to understand the world through divinity, I have my my innate skepticism. <laughs> That's right. Well, that's the thing. I, I joke around with my Jesuit friends. Uh, I'm like, you know what? I try to talk about things um, uh, without the God talk because um, sometimes it puts up either puts up a wall. So I, I, res- I respect and understand where you're coming from. So, um, so yeah, so I do want to understand the philosophy behind it. Nature itself is there for us to use, right? Is exactly. there for us to extract yeah. value from. Okay. The question is, how does it get distributed and how do we justify uneven distribution, right? That's where the tensions start arising. Yes. And that's actually, I'm glad you have that perception because that's what this concept of contributive justice is really all about. Um, It's this dimension of justice of how I understand it um, is that um, there's both this obligation to contribute Um, one's own resources, resources, whether they're material or spiritual resources, you know, your time, attention, love, you know, all of those things, um, your obligation to do that. um, But also you should have a right to be able to do that. So think about how people are in so many ways marginalized or discriminated against. Um, Those are what I would understand as contributive injustices, those uh, impediments that, um, uh, cause problems for people to um, be able to to live out who they are. You know, some of the issues that you're hinting at are what I understand as preconditions to a contributively just world. You know, what are those? You know, preconditions. You know, there there are things like um, having an adequate education or, or having access to an education, with you having the agency to choose whether or not you um, take advantage of that, um, adequate um, nutrition and healthcare, a safe community, all those things that need to be in place before you can, you know, get up, 
to live another day. Um, and so think about all the ways that societies are built that either foster that or in some ways um, leave it to the markets or to chance or to good fortune or whatever. Um, you know, I see those as being very problematic. How do you, how do we understand the current state of, of, of our country of America being a place that is one of the most Christian countries in the world, which, which means, like you said, that the founded on this idea of love and solidarity being also one of the most unequal countries in, at least in the Western world. And that, that, that almost, that doesn't only um, perpetuate inequality, but to some extent relishes. Oh, Adam, I think in a lot of ways, you know, we've done a really crappy job of being a Christian country. Um, I, I can't remember who said it, but it's like, I'd be Christian if I'd ever met one. <laughs> I think we have aspirations, um, but I, you know, and a lot of room for growth. <laughs> Don, thank you so much for uh, playing along. Thank you. No, thanks. It was fun. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you want to support us, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends.